Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Our show is taking a short break this summer. In place of new content, we are running some of our favorite episodes so far this year. Today, the second installment of our Women in Business podcast series featuring BC Treaty Chief Commissioner Celeste Haldane. Enjoy. My guest today is the Chief Commissioner of British Columbia's Treaty Commission, which facilitates treaty negotiations between BC First Nations and the governments of BC and Canada. Celeste Haldane was appointed to the role in 2017. Prior to this, she served as an elected commissioner with the BC Treaty Commission for three two-year terms. Ms. Haldane is a practicing lawyer working on a doctorate in anthropology and law from the University of British Columbia. She sits on UBC's Board of Governors and is the first Indigenous Chair of the Legal Services Society. She's a member of the Musqueam and Metlakatla communities, and she joins me today on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, For me, it's always a blessing to be at home and within my traditional territory, which is Musqueam, and we share with our Coast Salish relatives, uh, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh. So again, thank you, and I look forward to our conversation today. As do I. It's great to have you. Now, you're about halfway through your first term as Chief Commissioner. What would you say have been your greatest lessons learned so far in this this role? Well, I think the lessons learned um, are, you know, reflecting on the process, the treaty negotiations process, um, recognizing that there is a lot of work that needs to be done uh, when it comes to reconciliation. And I know that the Treaty Commission is just uh, one facet to that uh, larger role of reconciliation. Um, I think another lesson to reflect on is um, treaty negotiations take time. And I think people need to understand and be patient when it comes to the investment that is being made through the treaty negotiations process. Patience is key. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. <laughs> a key skill of being a commissioner. Uh, how much did your role change when you went from being a commissioner several times over to being chief commissioner of the commission? So I'd say my role changed from the active table facilitation. So I had the luxury and the privilege to uh, visit many communities throughout British Columbia, many Indigenous communities, and I've always appreciated that. And I think that's the anthropology and the anthropologist coming out uh, in me, being able to liaise and learn from other communities. That has changed a little bit in my role as Chief Commissioner, because as Chief Commissioner, you're a CEO, so more inward-looking, when it comes to the administration. Um, also, I think our public education has increased. By that, I mean uh, focusing on uh, communication, public education, speaking engagements. So I tend to focus more on that than actually um, going into communities, which I you know, still have the opportunity to do, just not as much as I did before. Mm-hmm. What message do you try to bring to the broader business communities, broader society when you're out and about speaking about your experience and about the treaty process? Well, one, I'd like to look at the economic uh, initiatives that are underway through treaty. So reflecting on uh, what Sawasan has been able to maintain and achieve through treaty negotiations and 
uh, by implementing their treaty. I think they are an exemplary community to look at when it comes to uh, private investment. So the recent announcement with Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that they've been able to invest within their own community and their own uh, cultural revival is taking place. And that's through treaty. I think that's exciting. And I think that should be a message that is shared amongst the greater uh, population of Canada and, and British Columbia. What would you say is the most challenging aspect to your role? Most challenging? Well, there's probably a number. Uh, part of it <laughs> is the work-life balance, I have to say. Um, being a mother of three and my youngest uh, is still at home and uh, having two grandchildren is also balancing the amount of travel that I do, but also the quality of time that I get to spend with family. And so for me, that has been, uh, I think, something that I've worked through my entire career, having a very supportive and stable uh, home life. But being able to balance that out, given the fact that um, I tend to like to do work as well as school and, and everything else in between. So you've got a lot on the go. Is there a secret to the balance or do you figure it out as you go? I just roll with the punches as it goes. Um, it, there's, it's, you know, part of it is having a very supportive and understanding uh, partner and husband. And I think that is, is key to every bit of success. I also think having supportive family and community behind you as well, understanding uh, your needs as, as you move through, uh, whether it's career transition or education transition and making sure that you can build um, those alliances as, as you move through. Um, and a lot of it is just fly by the seat of your pants. I mentioned your doctorate. You mentioned anthropology. You have several degrees under your belt and are working on another. How does your educational background underscore and inform the work you do now? Well, I think education is extremely important. And I reflect on, um, yes, the fact that uh, I have a, you know, the luxury of having a number of, of degrees and been able to uh, attend law school and, you know, pursue a master's. Um, but I do think that education is so extremely important and valuable for several reasons. One, it is a way to move beyond um, some of the impacts of colonization. So some of the impacts of residential school where education was not the number one uh, goal of residential school. Um, you know, most of my uh, family and relatives who went through the residential school uh, process, of course, you know, education was, was a barrier. And so I think that education is one of the most important investments that we can make uh, with all our children, but especially with Indigenous children, um, because that is a path to freedom. And I say that because education is something that cannot be taken away. And it is, I think, the way that we will transform our communities, transform our lives. And for me, it's been uh, life-changing is to be able to pursue and have the privilege to pursue uh, those degrees. What was the educational backgrounds of, of your family, if you don't mind me asking, in relation to your experience going through the educational system? So my education in my family has been uh, varied. So my mother went back uh, to university later on in her life. And so for, for me, that was, you know, one role model, knowing that um, you can have several different careers, you can take care of children and then go back uh, to university. And so I think that was important uh, reflection for me to be able to draw on, on her experiences. Uh, my dad is a commercial fisherman and uh, he did attend, I think, some college. Um, but again, focusing on uh, sustaining the family through 
commercial fishing. I do have other family members that were able to pursue post-secondary. Uh, but again, it's later on generally in our lives that we, we tend to go back to school. So been able to draw on uh, some experiences uh, to, you know, pursuing uh, post-secondary, but um, is definitely varied and not something that was uh, necessarily instilled um, at, you know, early on. How far do you think we've come in reducing the barriers that exist, particularly for Indigenous youth trying to access education and wanting to access education? Well, I'd say there's a lot of work still left to do. And, um, you know, I reflect on my role at the UBC Board of Governors and the fact that that's my uh, alumni as well. And those are the questions that I often uh, ask and challenge of uh, leadership at UBC is what are we doing to actually ensure that there are those opportunities? Um, I think about, um, you know, the, the youth that are in remote communities and moving away from home is awfully scary. So are we able to deliver and partner perhaps with other institutions that can deliver uh, education directly to them without having students leave home? Um, I also think that uh, funding is another barrier. I think there's a misconception when it comes to um, you know the fact that I think some people think that all education for all Indigenous learners is paid for. And that's just not true. So how are we um, able to alleviate the financial burden on students transitioning from a remote community into the big city? I think that is uh, an area that we need to continue to work on. And academic institutes must play that leadership role in doing that and creating the space that Indigenous learners need. Mm. Do you think there's a role technology can play in helping to maybe bridge the gap that exists? Absolutely. I, I reflect on um, having completed my master's degree through Osgood through a, um, it's lack of better words, a distance type program. And by that, uh, we had live streaming of our classroom. So I was able to connect in through a webcam that was done live. And so they could see me and my class could, you know, we could participate that way uh, without having to necessarily leave. And at that point, I was living in Port Alberni. You know, so it, it uh, I think technology can be utilized in ways that we haven't uh, thought or dreamt of in, when it comes to university space. I think we're getting to that area. And uh, when we're delivering services and education, I think technology could be well utilized uh, in the northern areas. Mm -hmm. It's so critical. And further to that, you mentioned the important role academic institutions can play. We brought it out to the general business community. What role do you see businesses, corporations, other organizations playing in, in this narrative of economic reconciliation? Well, I think they have an important role to play. Um, so thinking about uh, mentorship versus sponsorship, right? So I think uh, creating mentorship space for uh, our youth that are either entering into academic institutions, universities, college trades, I think is extremely important. So making sure that we have well-connected business community leaders and um, up-and-coming 
uh, youth that are pursuing education. I think that's one thing. Then I look at it from a leadership perspective and think that uh, there's definitely more work to do when it comes to the sponsorship. So someone who is actively recruiting someone that they see that has potential talent for leadership and actually investing in in that uh, individual. And I think that's where the business community can absolutely lead when it comes to uh, economic reconciliation. I think another area is also drawing on some of the partnerships that are created between uh, Indigenous communities and businesses and doing that um, sort of job sharing and job swapping and um, that type of work I think is innovative, it's creative, but you're also ensuring that um, there's that knowledge transition both ways. It has to be reciprocal. Mm-hmm. I know Minerva BC, they put out a face of leadership report scorecard every year and looking at some of the numbers among 267 board seats at the top 50 BC companies, just two are held by Indigenous women. That's less than 1%. When you hear a stat like that, what goes through your mind and what do you think about in terms of how we have to change that number? Wow, I didn't realize it was actually that stark. Um, I know it's been a challenge recruiting and investing in women at that level. I was, um, I'm actually quite surprised that it's that low for Indigenous women in particular. Uh, to me, that highlights the the absolute need um, to invest in in women in leadership. I think that highlights the need to ensure that um, when you see leadership and you see talent and you see up and coming talent that again, back to the sponsorship, it's investing, it's, it's investing in uh, I think ways that um, we haven't seen before. And I think the business community can play an integral role and must play an integral role in that. Um, And for me, you know, if I think of my future and what that might look like and being interested in uh, corporate boards uh, that kind of, is, um, I guess, humbling to some extent, because even myself might consider or think, well, perhaps there's no room at that uh, level for me, so perhaps I shouldn't pursue that. And I think that's a really wrong message to send to uh, women in leadership and Indigenous women in leadership. And so I think there's a lot of work that we need to do uh, when it comes to investing in uh, leadership roles for women. Mm-hmm. And you're, of course, an Indigenous woman in a leadership position, not necessarily in the, the typical business sense, but certainly at a very key organization. What do you think about your role in the platform you have to try and advocate or shed light on these kinds of issues? Oh, absolutely. Well, I take that role quite seriously. Um, I think the more space that we can create for Indigenous leaders and Indigenous women, that we absolutely should. But it should be for creating space for all women. I think we all have different uh, voices. We come with different perspectives. Um, You know, I think it's cutting across uh, all types of, um, when I reflect on diversity of inclusiveness, and it's being respectful of those viewpoints that everyone brings. And I think it's important that we, that everyone has a cross-section of diversity uh, within any business community, within any leadership organization, uh, within any uh, organization. And I think if we need, 
you know, if there's more work to be done, it, everyone has to come to the table. And I certainly invest uh, my time in uh, up and coming talent. And um, I share my experiences with anyone who actually wants to sit and have coffee. I'm more than open to doing that. And I think more and more uh, women do that with one another. And I think we have to actually just ensure that we're creating that space um, and that young leaders or young women that want to pursue uh, whatever their career is, that they have those opportunities to be able to network and to find um, their space of supporters. I want to pick up on a word you said, and that was respect, respectfully listening and understanding different viewpoints. How well do you think we are in this day and age respectfully trying to understand and, and listen to other people's stories and perspectives? Well, I come from uh, a line of where you are taught respect without a doubt. And being able to listen is probably one of the most fundamental uh, areas that anyone can can provide. And by that, I mean um, taking the time to listen to other stories, to listen to other narratives, to really try to get an understanding as to where someone else is coming from is so important. It's important in uh, leadership. It's important in our day-to-day -day lives. But it's also really important when we think about what's happening globally. I think about uh, we should be able to hear diverse perspectives. Whether we agree with them or not, that's completely different. But we have to ensure that we are hearing everyone's voices. Um, and, you know, sometimes we aren't going to like what we hear. And sometimes uh, they might not like what we have to say either. But it's, it's about uh, creating that space. And it's about having that dialogue. Because for me, dialogue creates understanding. We might not agree on everything, but I do think that dialogue is extremely important, particularly in, in today's age. And I mean, there's so many different platforms when it comes to uh, people being able to um, engage in dialogue, whether it's social media, whether it's the media, um, whether it's face-to-face. -face. And um, I do think that uh, being respectful in our dialogue is an important, uh, you know, I think it's important teaching for me, but I think it's important for everyone to, to have that understanding. You mentioned earlier the important role that technology can play, say, in, in helping facilitate or bring about greater educational opportunities. It's a blessing and a curse sometimes what technology has brought about, particularly if you're talking about dialogue and discourse. Do you think it's getting easier to maybe understand different viewpoints or is it getting murkier or is the, is the answer somewhere in between? Well, the answer is probably somewhere <laughs> in between because that's, uh, I was sort of running in the middle sometimes. Um, I do think things are getting murkier. And, and by that, I mean, if we think about, um, you know, the, the blessing, I guess, of social media and Twitter, uh, Instagram and all these other uh, platforms that we have to engage, uh, there's that anonymity that's behind that. So people can tweet and uh, be trolls and be hateful and hurtful um, and, you know, cyber bully without actually having to own it. And I think that's a problem. And I think if you're going to say something, you're going to stand for something, uh, whether, you know, it's whether I agree or anyone else agrees with it or not. I think um, taking off that mask and being able to show who you are and say what you want to say, that to me shows more respect than it is to hide behind some, some anonymous uh, name or handle and to be a bully out there. And I think, you know, that to me sort of flies in the face of respectful discourse. 
and I think you know everyone should be able to see who who's actually um, saying what they're what they're saying out there. It certainly shows more respect. It takes quite a bit of vulnerability or a, an ability to sort of have those ten seconds of courage, if you will, and and put yourself out there. Oh, absolutely. I just reflect on uh, my children who are, you know, have grown up in this digital age of social media, and I can't even fathom what it would be like to be a teenager growing up uh, with all these um, different platforms of having your life basically right out there. And uh, so, you know, we have a lot of cautious conversations around our digital footprint and the fact that, uh, you know, what you put out there is out there forever. So, be very careful of that footprint. And um, I think it's an important lesson that uh, as parents, we need to, con- you know, continuously remind our children how vulnerable they are, but also what they say can mean and does mean things and can be hurtful and to be respectful in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a different, uh, different time for it's sure. A very different time. What would you say in, in the time we're in now, what are the fundamental qualities of of being a leader? Well, I think being a leader is, um, you know, understanding your situation. I also think understanding your political plight. So that's part of it. Um, And that I think was with any, uh, in any leadership role. Uh, I also think the other uh, aspects are uh, not afraid to take risk because I think that's part of it. Um, you know, pushing the boundaries is important, I think, and not being disrespectful in any pushing of the boundaries. But I just reflect on um, where we are politically as a country and even the province. I mean, the first time that we're seeing alignment when it comes to uh, Indigenous issues, uh, both federally and provincially and recognizing where the country has moved to with uh, legalization of marijuana, uh, the um, legalization of assisted death. I mean, you know, we are in a, in a, in a very interesting time. So I, that's what I say around uh, pushing the boundaries, but it's also reflective of where society is. So making sure that you're also reflective of societal, uh, what your role is in society, um, societal values, I think is important as well. And, um, you know, again, making sure that you have an incredible team because as I reflect on uh, in my roles and my various roles, getting to where I've, where I am today, um, I certainly couldn't do that without having a supportive family. I certainly couldn't do that without having people in the background pushing me forward, uh, without having an incredible team that I'm amazed to um, work with every day at the Treaty Commission and beyond because, as I said before, I have the absolute pleasure and privilege to work with all types of uh, Indigenous communities and all business leaders and all different facets of society. And I absolutely, uh, that's the part of work that I absolutely enjoy. Um, but a big part of me is also uh, about social justice. So where are we at? Are we moving the dial on some of these big issues, whether it's on Indigenous issues, whether it's to do with, um, you know, my role as Legal Services Society Chair? Uh, are we making sure that we're making a difference for those people that it absolutely is critical to make a difference? Are we moving the dial? I think we are moving the dial. And I'm, I'm actually... Um, I'm glad to be a small part in that moving of the dial and seeing 
how we can continue to push and improve, um, I would say, the quality of life for those that are uh, most marginalized. So thinking of uh, our Indigenous populations, thinking of those that are uh, suffering from mental health issues, uh, addiction issues, as well as those that are trying to navigate a very uh, complicated path, you know, in in, in their lives. Um, I do think we're, we're on the, I think, a positive trajectory trajectory for when it comes to making a difference. Do I think we're there that? No, absolutely not. There's much more work to do. And so I hope there's others behind me. And I know there are others behind me that will continue to pick up and push where we need to push. How far do you think we've come generally as as a society in our understanding of some of these issues? Because that's a very important starting point is understanding where the needle is, what the needle is, and where we're trying to move it. Well, I would say um, I I think we're at a, a better place, and I and I re- and I say that because I will reflect on I think the changes that have happened in the education curriculum for for instance K to twelve. I reflect on when I was in um, K to twelve, and uh, I won't say when I was in those, <laughs> so I, I will not uh, <laughs> date myself too much. But I do recall um, not learning anything about Indigenous people. There was one line in one of my social studies textbooks, I think in grade 10 or 11, and that was it. I mean, if we don't teach our children about our shared history as British Columbia and as Canada, how are others going to understand if we actually don't even talk about it, if we don't talk about um, the impacts of colonization, if we don't talk about uh, residential school and all the harms that uh, came from from you know that long time period, if we don't talk about uh, the children that continue to be in care, um, and a number and majority of those children are Indigenous then we are doomed to repeat ourselves. And by that, I mean, um, there is no corrective path. And I think it takes that courage to talk about these issues and teach our children about these um, circumstances. Because, like I said, this is our shared history as a country. And I think it takes everyone learning about each other. And and I'm a big proponent, always have been, of that cross-sharing of cultural information because there's so much we can learn from each other. I um, recognize that, you know, our province and our country is so diverse and there's so much that we can learn from from each other if we just share that cultural knowledge with each other. Where are the forums in which to do that, do you think? Well, I think certainly starting in our uh, education system, so K-12, to I mean, you're going to I think more and more diversity in the classrooms. Uh, I think that's important. I think there's a role that education uh, can play when it comes to breaking down barriers and understanding each other's uh, cultures and similarities. It's not about differences. Mm-hmm. It's it's finding similarities. It's knowing that we're all human beings at the end of it. Um, and, you know, being proud of who you are, regardless of where you have come from or who your family is. But I think instilling pride in children is really helpful. I think when we look at um, building self-esteem and healthy children and turning into healthy adults, it starts from that foundation, knowing who they are, being proud of who they are, and being able to share it with the world. That's so important, especially talking about the social media environment, mental health issues, whatever it may be. It's important to have that foundation. I 
want to follow up on something you said, and that was being a risk taker and how that's key to being a leader. What are some of the risks you feel you've taken in your life and career? Oh, um, probably a few. So, uh, yes, I think take it, but knowing when to take the risks, I mm -hmm. think is the other important aspect of it. Um, some of the risks that I've taken. So I moved, um, born and raised in Vancouver, moved to Port Alberni, taking my entire family with me to pursue uh, work in an area that I was interested. So I went um, from my community into uh, over to New Chalno territory. I think that was a big risk. And I was moving away from all of my supports, um, so to speak, and moving into uh, a community. I've never lived in a, in a smaller community than Vancouver. So that was uh, eye-opening in itself. But I think for me, that was, it was necessary. And I learned so much from uh, the work that I did at the Newtonla Tribal Council. Uh, I grew as a, as a person. I think that's really important, that self-reflective uh, you know, aspect of, of one in, you know, leadership. I think we need to be um, aware of where we're at and what our circumstances are. And knowing that um, I was able to make a difference in the work that I was doing, to me, that is extremely important. Knowing that I am uh, taking on very challenging situations, I'm able to problem solve, but I'm working collaboratively with a bunch of other, uh, you know, team members. But I think some of the other um, amazing experiences are working with the Indigenous communities that I was able to immerse myself in. And to me, that was very valuable, very important. It was risky because I was, again, moving away from and dra dragging my family along, right? And yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure they were, uh, they were there, but... <laughs> So how did you then come to make those decisions? How did you evaluate what was a risky decision to make? And how did you ultimately decide this is the best path I can take? Big part of it was um, was aligning with the work that I wanted to do. Um, I started out my career as uh, in Vancouver as a criminal defense uh, lawyer, you know, articled in that area, and recognized that perhaps this isn't necessarily. It's not that I didn't enjoy the work; it's just different work. I'd always wanted to um, go in and sort of practice in Aboriginal or Indigenous law, and this is the opportunity that uh, presented itself, and. I knew that uh, going into it, it was going to be a bit of a challenge, i.e. getting to know new community, getting to know uh, new um, Indigenous leaders, as well as other leaders in, um, in Port Alberni. Um, but the other factor was, you know, having a discussion with my family, making sure, are you guys okay with this? Because when it came back to me taking a position in Vancouver, they were like, no, we're not moving. Mm. So, um, you know, giving them uh, a voice and the ability to uh, weigh into decisions, I think is important. That's how sort of our household is and making sure that everyone was okay with what, what was going on. Um, and I think that's part of it. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot going on when you have young kids. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> How much has your, your legal background, both as a lawyer, but also educationally, influenced your career path and the work you do now? Oh, I think it's been uh, extremely valuable. And um, practicing law is, is one thing, but understanding how to um, utilize the, the law and the understandings that uh, and the training that I've received in order to push the envelope has been advantageous. I think it's been 
probably the most helpful uh, in my career path thus far. And I say that because you're able to actually um, dig deep into policy issues, um, dig deep into, uh, you know, into other areas, I I call them the gray areas. So the areas that I can continue to push out. So again, pushing the boundaries and and that's part of taking risk is knowing when to actually push a push a boundary to make some change. Um, I think is important. It's part of the um, that risk analysis does come from legal training too. Uh, I think it's you know I I wouldn't change it. I learned a lot. Um, but I guess probably one of the most uh, important learnings that came out of law school was uh, that's where I met my husband. Mm. We were first year moot court partners. So. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Um, it's important to have the, the legal framework because it underscores everything, really. It's important to have that context. Moving forward, what are your goals in the role that you have now? So I'd say finishing out uh, my first uh, term as chief commissioner is certainly seeing more uh, treaties cross the finish line. And this year we have uh, seen another uh, a number of nations moving from stage four to stage five. I think that's exciting. Um, I think when it comes to the large policy issues that have been dealt with, um, i.e. the loans, Moving forward, it's contribution funding. Um, so the the loan issue, it still remains. However, moving forward in treaty negotiations, there's no more loans for nations. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and, you know, again, just being one piece of the the puzzle that continues to push and advocate in that area has been in, an important uh, milestone for the, the process. Um, I think to continue to enjoy the work that I do, that's number one. And uh, I've always enjoyed this area of work. I've enjoyed my uh, time facilitating as a commissioner and in my role as chief commissioner. And um, so I'll continue to do that and continue to advocate, continue to push and open doors for those that need the doors opened. And I, I reflect on um, my last year and a half, and I know that we've we've done an incredible job as a team and I continue to look forward to uh, continuing to, you know, push barriers and, really inform, uh, I think, everyone and continue to inform of the importance of reconciliation through treaty negotiations and what uh, economic and socioeconomic benefits treaties can bring. And so for me, that's what I will continue to focus on is sharing that message and highlighting those nations that have gone through and are implementing and are extremely successful. You have Sawasan, you have Manuth, you have Tlayam, and that are all successfully self-governing, self-determining nations. And that's a big part of it is making sure that uh, nations were able to move through um, their path forward to self-determination, but more importantly, to break the shackles of the Indian Act and, and move on the way that they see fit. Mm -hmm. And when you say your preparedness to break down barriers, push the envelope, so to speak, how have you figured out, okay, now's the time to push really hard, now's the time maybe I, I hold back, or do you just push as hard as you can and see what happens? What's the sort of the art and science behind that? I don't know if there's any order in science. <laughs> um, well, I always push and I always ask questions. And I think that's that's uh, part of my nature. And um, I always ask questions as to why you can't do that like, and challenge. 
uh, at all times. And I think that's just my curious nature uh, might make other people uncomfortable, but I, I like to push. So that's one way to do it. The other is knowing your uh, political environment. So a lot of our uh, work is done through, um, you know, liaising with British Columbia, Canada and the First Nations Summit and knowing when the climate is right to change when there's been political change. And I think right now has been uh, the most important time and Indigenous issues, moving the dial on Indigenous issues, moving the dial on treaty negotiations, uh, because we have the right political climate. To me, that's important. Also making sure that you have allies when you do it, i.e. business community, media, everyone out there wanting to make sure that we're pushing in the right direction. And I think that is, for lack of better words, the perfect storm. That's where change gets made. And, and, um, and you know, and and when you don't have those, uh, I guess, the right political climate, you continue to push and advocate anyways. Why not? Was your future husband, your partner in first year law school, also a pusher in the sense of wanting to ask questions? Or do you differ in that regard? I think we differ in that regard <laughs> quite a bit. But uh, as he would say, you know, opposites attract, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like your analogy of that we're in the perfect storm. Of course, political environments are always shifting and they don't line up nicely. And we're, we're heading toward a federal election cycle. And there could be other changes that we don't know that are on the horizon. Over the next year or so, what do you hope to see while we sort of have this perfect storm environment, as you put it? Well, um, the focus has always been on making sure that we make the change that is required to have healthy, happy uh, communities. And I think about changing the socioeconomic conditions that exist in a number of Indigenous communities in our country. And I think that's important. I think we need to see so many changes in those communities that desperately need change. Um, to me, that's important. So that's a part of the social justice that needs to happen. That's a part of um, taking care of the effects of colonization that needs to happen. Um, I, I think that uh, in this perfect storm, um, there have been commitments and there have been movements when it comes to how we have treated our Indigenous partners. And um, I will continue to push, and I know others will continue in their spheres to, to make sure that uh, the work that we do, and um, you know, when I say the work that I do, it's broadly that we have made a difference and that we have made a difference to those lives that I think matter the most, the most marginalized people that have, for the longest time, haven't had a voice. And that's a part of... Um, you know, when I say I advocate, I hope that I'm helping those that haven't had a voice and I am their voice to make that change. I'm that voice to open up the doors and that voice to uh, highlight and shed light on issues that we haven't wanted to discuss as a society as well. And that's a part of, uh, I think, my role in, in leadership. That's part of my responsibility in leadership. That's also my responsibility as an Indigenous person as well, is making sure that what I do matters and it counts and that we continue to push the dial on these issues. Celeste, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about these issues. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been my uh, pleasure and privilege. 